0: Good to see all of you this morning. Hey, we're in Romans chapter 7, if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, there's one under one of the chairs around you, and you can pick it up and turn to Romans chapter 7. Uh, If you're taking notes, the title this morning is The Paradox of Being a Christian. The Paradox of Being a Christian. As you're turning there, why don't I pray for us? God, we come before you this morning, and it's so great to be able to uh, to sing these songs together and uh, to affirm all these great truths—the um, fact that we are dependent upon you in every single way—and to recognize that uh, so much of the world tries to tell us that our worth is in what we do or what we possess or the relationships that we have, but we as your people have found that our worth is in you and in you alone. And we're thankful um, for that liberating truth um, because the other truths tend to be so uh, oppressive. And uh, so we're thankful for that um, salvation that you have given to us. And uh, God, I pray that this morning, um, as we look at a really fascinating passage, Lord, that, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would challenge us and transform us, that you would encourage us in our walk with you, and that your spirit would be moving among us in the hearts of your people um, in order to transform us into the people that you want us to be. Uh, God, I pray for any in our church who are going through difficulty in their life or struggle. I pray that, God, um, this morning would be a, an, an opportunity for grace and uh, a, a soothing balm for them and I pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. The paradox of being a Christian. We, that is those of us who have committed our lives to being followers of Jesus, so I'm, obviously I'm speaking to Christians when I say that, we will have those moments. Those moments, those days, even those seasons of life where we struggle to live consistently with our beliefs. And our desires, whether that be bouts of depression or bouts of anger and frustration or where we just don't, we're just not feeling it. We don't have the feels. And, and our walk with the Lord isn't as strong as we may want it to be. And those seasons, those moments, those times can be extremely discouraging for the child of God. We're discouraged because we know that sin is destructive And we don't want to allow that destructive, that sinful behavior into our lives, our families, our communities. We're discouraged because we know that sin and ungodly behavior creates relational separation between us and people and and us and God. Not that God has pulled away from us, but oftentimes we recoil. We pull away from God in those seasons of darkness in our own life. And we're discouraged because we know that the world is watching us. And then when we act less than what we feel a Christian should act, we feel like the enemy is right there and certainly the world is right there to point the finger and say, aha, look at you. Look at what you're doing. Look at them. And that is why I don't believe in Jesus. Again, these moments in the life of a Christian can be discouraging at best and crippling at worst. I know in my own life after walking with Jesus for almost 17 years now, I have experienced victory in so many areas of my life, and and yet I'm constantly reminded on an almost daily basis that I am not yet what I will be. You see, every believer in Christ, while they remain in this life, live in what theologians refer to as the already and not yet of salvation history. We are already saved from the penalty of sin through faith in Christ, and yet we are not fully saved from the presence of sin until the return of Christ. So we live in this limbo, this already and not yet of salvation history. In other words, when you become a Christian, everything has changed, and to some degree nothing has changed. Your identity has changed, and yet you still have the same name. Uh, You go to the same school or go to the same job the next day. You wear the same clothes. You have the same haircut, right? Everything has changed, and and yet nothing has changed to some degree. You're still you, but you aren't the same you anymore. And it's this, this struggle that creates this tension that then creates these issues in our lives. And this is what I'm calling the paradox of the Christian life. You see, a paradox is not like a contradiction or an inconsistency. A paradox is defined as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition, or in this case, lifestyle, that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded as true. A paradox, then, are twin truths that appear to contradict one another but are nevertheless equally and necessarily True, and the paradox of the Christian life is this, that God has declared me, declared you to be righteous through faith and through His grace, and yet I am more like a wretch than a righteous person. God has declared me to be a saint, set apart by His grace through faith, yet I'm still a sinner. And this is the paradox, while I live in the flesh. It's this paradox of the Christian life that Paul is going to confess and analyze for us here in Romans chapter 7. For over 2,000 years of church history, Christians have tried to resolve this tension. This issue in the Christian life, where God tells me I am this way, and yet so often in my daily experience, I feel like this. And they've tried to resolve this tension that's found even in these verses and in our own experience, and we're going to consider some of those this morning. But overall, this is what I hope to discuss with you this morning. If you're a Christian, just because you are saved from sin doesn't mean there won't still be a battle against it. And we all know this to be true if you've been a Christian longer than 24 hours. In fact, the moment you became a Christian was the moment this war really began in your life. Prior to your conversion, you were a prisoner of war, locked up and shackled by the power of sin, enslaved under its dominion and reign. But now… Through faith in the message of the cross, you have escaped the clutches of sin, been removed from that dominion, that reign of sin, and been transferred to the kingdom of God, and yet, so the the enemy and sin has lost, and yet they're really sore losers, and they're not going to let you celebrate too quickly. They're not going to let you celebrate too quickly. But there is hope, hope in Christ, both for salvation from sin and sanctification, from sin. You really, truly can change and be different. I'm going to break this text down into three sections. We're in Romans 7. We're going to be in verse 13. We, we read it last week, but we're going to start in 13 this week. And we'll read down to verse 16. Paul writes, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin." And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Let's pause there. One of the most important features of the verses we're going to cover this morning is that Paul's use of the word, I. And the reason is because it helps us to answer another important question that many have asked of this text, which is this, is Paul speaking as an unsaved, an unregenerate person, someone who has yet to put their faith in Jesus? Like he was talking about in the first half of chapter 7, or is this someone who is saved? They are regenerate, but is now engaged in the spiritual battle against the flesh. In the first half of chapter 7, Paul also uses his personal pronoun, I, but he uses it in the past tense. In other words, when he talked about how when the law came to him, remember this last week when the law came to him, he says it was in that moment that I, I Die. This is past tense, a past experience. Assumingly, it was in the days that led up to his conversion to Jesus. But now the tense has changed, and the use of the word I here in these verses is in the present tense, which leads me and many others to believe that this is Paul's present personal confession as a believer to the ongoing battle that he still has against sin in his own Now, there are good arguments for the other position, that this this is Paul speaking in the present tense, but in reference to an unconverted, unregenerate person. It's almost like he's playing a character. After all, he mentions there at the end of verse 14 that he is someone sold under sin. And for that matter, the entire section kind of paints this picture that there's no real hope for the unregenerate person to overcome the power and presence of sin while still in this life. Again, this is why some have concluded maybe Paul is speaking as an unregenerate person. However, though Paul admits that his flesh is sold under sin, he also states, but I want to obey the law of God. What unregenerate person do you know wants to obey the law of God and follow the law of God. No one does. Paul himself declares in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, no not one, none seeks after God. They've all gone their own way. Uh, another view that should also be mentioned is that this I is someone who is maybe a brand new Christian, someone who is recently born again, and they're trying to figure out, okay, now I'm a Christian, but I know more of the old life than I do of this new life. How do I live in the Spirit and not according to to the flesh. And this is certainly a good perspective. And I think a lot of new Christians can relate to Romans chapter 7. And of course, even the the super saint can relate to Romans 7. Nevertheless, I think the tense of the grammar plus the context of this passage, building off of everything that Paul has said so far about the Christian life and justification by faith alone, it's most likely that Paul is speaking here as a regenerate person, someone who is saved, who has placed their faith in Jesus, but they have found themselves continuing to struggle in that tension, in that already and not yet, in this season of our lives where we're saved, but we're not yet fully saved, how to deal with not just the power of sin, but the presence of sin that is still there in our lives, in this world, and in the flesh. So that is an important point for us to distinguish here because it frames the conversation and it casts light on the conversation that we're going to have here in chapter 7. But the big idea in these early verses is this tension between the law and the flesh. Remember the discussion last week was around the question as to whether or not the law itself was sinful. That is, was the law the source of my sin? Is it what caused me to sin? And as we read in verses 12 and 13 that the law is not sin. On the contrary, the law is holy. The law is good. The law is righteous. And that the real problem isn't with the law, but our flesh's response to the law. He writes there in verse 14 that the law is spiritual which is to say, the law is from God. It isn't corrupted by the fall. It's not characterized by the flesh. In other words, the law is categorically different than you and me. It's spiritual, given to us by God and therefore good and holy. We are made of flesh and are therefore subject to corruption and sin. But here is what Paul is getting at and hoping for us to understand, that even though the law of God is holy and good, while we remain in the flesh, The law lacks the power both to save the unregenerate person, and the law lacks the power to sanctify the regenerate person. In the next chapter we read, you can go ahead and look, verse 3 of chapter 8, "'For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do.'" The law cannot save you. The law cannot change you. The law is unable to save or sanctify a person. And yet, we try, don't we? We try. Why? Because there's something inside every single person that wants to try and earn it. There's just something about us that wants to, we know we've done something wrong and now we feel this angst to try and make it right On our own. We like to justify the self. One of the most difficult aspects about being a Christian is accepting the fact that there's nothing that I can do to save myself, and nothing that I can do to keep myself saved. We want to be able to bring something to the table, something to say, God, but look at look at all the good stuff I did for you. Remember, isn't that the the Matthew chapter 7 thing? But look at all the good things I did. Didn't we do all these things in your name? Look at what I bring to the table. And that's what we try and do. We, we think that we need to pay some payment or some penance for the things that we have done. Before faith, people try all they can to try and prove themselves, and hopefully to God why they're good enough to get into heaven. But as we've already d- discussed at length over the previous chapters, there aren't enough good deeds to outweigh the bad, and the bad deeds are worse than we realize, and they need to be paid for, and we can't pay for it. But after faith even, even as Christians, we know this. We know we can't earn God's love. God just gives it to us. It's unconditional. But Christians often find themselves jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire in the sense that they accept the fact that they need forgiveness from past sins, but they assume, now that I'm saved, I have to do these great things for God in order for God to continue to love me or to accept me, and therefore I must obey the law in my flesh in order to preserve this salvation. Perhaps a, a quotation from Paul's letter to the Galatians will help us understand this point we're making here. He writes in Galatians 3, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, I love that, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. I love what Paul, how he t- talks. He said, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain. He's saying, listen, you began in the Spirit. Do you think now you continue the Christian life in the flesh? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no. You continue in the Spirit. The law couldn't save you is what he's saying. Why are you now trying to be perfected or sanctified or changed from your sin or this behavior from your flesh through law-keeping the law couldn't save you, it's not going to sanctify you either. In other words, did you become a Christian by keeping the law? Well, no. Well, then you should walk in that same way that you began, in the Spirit. You see, Paul in these early verses, in the middle of chapter 7, is speaking in a very personal way about his own battle for sanctification. You remember Paul. I mean, this was a guy who worked hard, harder than anyone, to try and earn or prove that he was worthy to be called a Hebrew, a child of God. But now he's a Christian and it's hard to undo that way of thinking. Yes, I wasn't saved this way. I, okay, I admit that. But, but do I need to continue to keep the law? And he realized too, man, it's not by law either. He realized the law is powerless to change him because it's weakened by the flesh. Not because there's anything wrong with the law. All the law can do In the flesh is crush a person. The law shows you how sinful you are. Rules never saved. Rules never changed a heart. They never changed a person. We know this as if you're a parent with kids, you impose rules, and and rules are are good. They're helpful, but they don't change a heart. They don't change a heart. They move out of your house, and then they do all the things you told them no to (laughs) not to do for the first eighteen years of their lives. So, this is Paul's point in the early section. Now, let's look at the second section. In in a section I'm calling the monster within, Uh, it's 17 to 20. He writes, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me." Now, these are some strange words that Paul is writing here, and some have even been led to conclude that Paul may have had multiple personalities. Does he have some like mental health issue or something like that? Like if you've seen that movie Fight Club, Edward Norton's character, or maybe the Hulk in the Marvel movies, right? There's this monster living inside of him and it comes out, or maybe the well-known dualistic story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with one counterpart sort of being good and the other part being evil and and the evil is wanting to, to take over. Or some have even suggested that maybe Paul was bipolar, which isn't so much as multiple personalities, but really massive mood swings, where he has really high highs and and really low lows. Is that what's happening here? I don't think this is a fair examination of what Paul is confessing here. First, someone with multiple personalities we know uh, does not actually know they have multiple personalities, they don't realize this, and here Paul is readily confessing it openly. This is, what, this is the battle I have inside. So, I think instead what Paul seems to be describing here with this intense language is an acute awareness of this internal struggle that every Christian has while we continue to live in the flesh, but also try to walk in dependence of the Spirit And again, to help us see this more clearly, again, I want to look at what Paul said to the church in Galatia, only this time in chapter 5. He writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do." But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Again, I want to point out to you Paul's reference to the Holy Spirit in these verses, because we'll come back to him at the end. Really, the the issue in this entire chapter 7 is not necessarily what Paul's talking about, but what he's not talking about. There's some thing that's not resolving this tension in the Christian life, and it's the thing missing in the text that he'll get into in chapter 8, which is the Holy Spirit and His work in the life of a Christian. But you can see this reference here in Galatians. But in the prior section, Paul admits that in his flesh nothing good dwells. That is, nothing within himself is capable of living in accordance with the law of God. In fact, he says that he often does the things that he doesn't want to do, and the things he wants to do, it's those are the things that he is not doing. It's like the constant frustration of every single Christian. Why did I just do that thing? Why did I just yell? Why did I just get angry? Why did I get frustrated or bitter at that person? Why did that just… That's not the person I want to be. That's not the person I know I I am anymore. Why am I still acting in this way? I know I need to be sharing Christ with that person. Why did I not do it? Why was I afraid to to jump in and have that conversation? The things that I want to do, I'm not doing. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I'm doing. I mean, isn't this the frustration of every Christian? And, And in these verses, he takes it even further by showing that, evil exists, that sin still dwells within his flesh, and even though it doesn't define him anymore, because of this new identity in Christ, it still influences his desires. It's like that friend that you stopped hanging out with because you knew they were a bad influence, but, but you still see them at school every day, or at work, or wherever. You know, You still see them all the time, and you're reminded of your past, or you're reminded of the influence, or whatever it is, and this is the paradox of the Christian life. You see, before you became a Christian as a human being, as a descendant of Adam, you had both a fallen nature and a fallen flesh, but now through faith in Jesus, your nature has been changed, but your flesh is still corrupted by sin, and this is what Paul is talking about here. Because in this new nature, we have new desires, desires to do what is right, to obey the law of God, and yet we find that in our flesh there are competing desires and yet a weak ability. Now, I do want to draw your attention to something Paul says there in verse 17 and 20. He kind of frames these verses together. There's two important things happening in that statement. First, when Paul says, it's no longer I who do it, he's showing us what I just mentioned, that through faith in Christ we have a new identity and freedom from sin. We have this new nature. Our past, the sins of our past, no longer define who we are in Christ, but Paul is showing us in these verses that it isn't just our past sins that are removed, that we don't have to define ourselves by anymore, but our present sins and our future sins We could say, I I, I know I do those things, but that's not who I am anymore, and I'm not letting that become my identity because my identity is in Christ. That's what Paul ultimately is saying. But secondly, I think it's important to mention that Paul is not using this separation from sin as an excuse to continue in it. It isn't as if Paul is trying to remove himself from any moral responsibility or ethical responsibility for the sins that he continues to battle with or do. He's not trying to say, oh, I know I did that, but that wasn't really me, so you can't actually hold me accountable to that or something. That's not what he's doing. But Christians tend to do this, don't we? They think that as long as they're being honest or real or genuine or whatever the word they use to dismiss or excuse what they're doing, then that's really all that matters. It's the highest virtue. And they usually maintain licentious or carnal lives. So again, there in verse 20, it isn't an excuse or a dismissal of moral responsibility, but an affirmation that sin no longer defines who we are, who Paul is as a child of God. But here's a philosophical question We, I think it would be good to ask at this juncture, why doesn't God just take sin away from the Christian life right away? The moment we become a Christian, why this limbo? Why this struggle? Why do we have to deal with this? Why doesn't He just remove the thorn from the flesh of sin the moment we become Christians? This is a philosophical question, and so the answer is, I have no idea because every philosophical question ends with the i have no idea right but i think there's biblical and theological answers to that question the first and i'm somewhat shooting out in the dark there but i think you guys will understand what i mean as an answer to that question first i think the reason why is to keep us dependent and i believe this is where paul is going in the next chapter so i'll just make my comments brief But if we were immediately relieved of our need for ongoing grace and ongoing forgiveness and dependence on God, we may be tempted to forget God. After all, that which we don't need anymore, we tend to forget. A second reason is to keep us humble. This was the purpose for which Paul came to realize why God didn't remove the thorn that was in his flesh. Remember, he prayed three times, God, remove this thorn from my flesh. But he said, in order to keep me humble because of the surpassing glory of all of the revelations that he was getting from God, he used that. He allowed that continue to stay there. Instead, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul boasted. He said, man, I'm going to boast in my weakness because in my weakness then he is made strong. So that's another reason. A third, I think, is to keep us longing for heaven, to keep us longing for heaven. That that longing we have to be rid of sin, I just want to be rid of sin in my life altogether, is really a longing for what life will be when we live in the new heavens and the new earth, when God finally sets all things right at the return of Christ. And the fact that sin continues to pester us should give us a constant animosity for this world. We, we have to admit that the allure to the world is a daily allure. We're constantly wanting to fall in love with the world again. And the, the fact that sin is there and continues to pester us should remind us, man, I don't want that world anymore. Take the world, but give me Jesus, as the song goes. But it should prod us to long for heaven and force us to prevent us from falling in love with the world again. Until then, we are going to have to live with this monster within and rest and trust in the grace of God that He supplies every single day. Which brings us to the concluding thought, the wretch and his deliverer, verse 21 and 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. When Paul speaks there of the law in verse 21, he's not talking about the law of God. He's talking about this principle or rule. I I find this principle kind of like the law of gravity, right? It's just something we all understand to be there. He's saying there's, there's a statement of reality that I see in myself. This pull toward evil. Furthermore, we can also know for sure that Paul is speaking as a born again Christian in these verses, because in verse twenty one he states that he delights in the law of God in his inner being, and, and this is an Old Testament reference. Remember Psalm one: Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the confession of a believer. Psalm 119.35, lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. Only the believer delights in the law of God, and that's why Paul is saying this. And when he talks about his inner being, he's talking about his new true self, this inner person that, that God is transforming us into that person he is now through faith in Jesus. And even though the flesh takes over at times, the flesh will eventually lose because the flesh is decaying. The flesh will eventually die, but our inner being, our inner self is growing into greater degrees of holiness as our flesh is decaying more as we walk in the Spirit. This is what Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 4. We do not lose heart, he writes, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The battle might be strong now, and you might feel like the flesh is winning on a regular basis and the spirit is losing on a regular basis, but the more you walk with Jesus... The more the years go by, the more road is in the rearview mirror, the more you will see, oh, the flesh is getting weaker and weaker, and the inner person is getting stronger and stronger. And this work is what God is doing in us by the Spirit. There is hope in the struggle as we continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. There is victory in the battle against sin, even if in the moment we feel like the skirmish, we're, we're losing and that's why Paul ends with this, this entire discussion with an, an exclamation, a question, and a celebration. The exclamation is this, O wretched man that I am. O wretched man that I am. Certainly, Paul was bothered by the fact that sin was plaguing his life, and it should bother our lives too when sin plagues our lives. We should be bothered by this. It should be an irritant in our lives and a prayerful stimulant that will make us want to seek God more and more, but he longed to be rid of it. The man who earlier declared that righteousness was by faith alone is at the same time aware of his wretchedness in the flesh, and as a sinner, Paul was aware of this reality that he continues to do these things, and yet he also relished in the fact that he was a saint. This is the paradox of being a Christian. But this exclamation forced a question, a desperate question. I I can't do it. I'm I'm a wretched person. I can't save myself. I can't change myself. Who then will deliver me? Who will deliver me from this body of, of death, And I think every believer asks that when we go through things in life, when we act in a way that we know, wow, why did I just do that thing? We think, God, will you please help me? Will you please deliver me from from this person? I don't want to be this anymore. We pray those those desperate prayers. And I I hope every unbeliever, when they come to the realization of who they are, prays that same prayer. Who will deliver me? And they'll come to the same conclusion because that, that question is really rhetorical. Because the answer is so incredibly obvious. If it's not me, and if it's not my friend, or if it's not my spouse, or if it's not some guru or whatever, it must be and only can be the Lord Jesus, the one who saved me. And this is where the chapter breaks, I think, are kind of unhelpful, because chapter 7 ends, but it really rolls right into chapter 8, though the break is there. But that's why Paul goes into verse 1. He says, There, there is therefore... Now no condemnation, and I'm just going to read the verses because we're going to study these next week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the answer to this tension. How do I live in the already and not yet, and within this struggle, and experience victory in it? It's life in the Spirit, it's not through the law but it's through dependence on the presence of God in the life of every single believer the moment that they believe. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion. Father, I uh, thank you so much for this text that we were able to cover this morning because it's so relevant for all of our lives because we all have experienced that battle. None of us can honestly look in the mirror as, as your children and say, that there aren't many areas that still need to be transformed and changed. And many of us cry out on, on, on our best days even, oh, oh, wretched person that I am. We wake up in the morning or, or something happens in the day, or by the end of the day, certainly we look in the mirror and life in this world and in the flesh has left us tattered in so many ways. And so we're thankful that in this this text, we're not alone in the struggle, but even the great Apostle Paul that we like to venerate so often had the same struggle in walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh. We're not alone in that battle, not just with our fellow believers, but we're not alone because You are with us, forgiving us, showing us Your grace teaching us valuable lessons through that struggle and ultimately preparing us for greater degrees of glory in the future. And that is our hope. That is our victory that we hold on to today, that even in the struggle, You can redeem those things. And we thank You for that and praise You for that in Jesus' name. Amen.